Please remain standing for the reading of today's scripture from Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 33. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of them. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all of these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning, and thank you so much to uh, especially our college ensemble choir. We're so glad that, uh, that you guys are, are here this morning and helping us out um, in worship and leading us in worship. Uh, it has been a joy for the past three years, every Sunday morning, to get to hear this youth choir. It is one of the most special things that we have here at this church, and so I thank all of you for your service. Now, this morning, we are concluding our series called Core Values. Over the past five weeks, we have been taking a look at the values that define who we are and who we are called to be as members of the body of Christ here specifically at Brentwood United Methodist Church. So the five values, just to recap, we have, we have outlined that we are Christ-centered. We have said that we have a ministry of all believers, that we must always remain teachable, that we are risk takers for the sake of the mission, and finally, that we are grace-filled people in the Wesleyan tradition. These are core values that are non-negotiable for us. They guide us in our ministry and in our lives. And today I want to bring kind of all of these together, but also I want to discuss some of the challenges that I think the church and also we as individuals can sometimes face in our current culture in trying to stay true to these core values. But I want to start this morning with a story, and, and this is one that you might be probably familiar with, although the origins of the story may not be quite as familiar to you because they weren't familiar to me. But it's the story of a British company from the 1800s called White Star Line. White Star Line. Now, in the 1800s, there were two innovative ways of transportation, of trying to get around. One was the, the steam-powered railroad that could uh, take people across countries and across continents. And the other were steam-powered passenger ships that could take people all the way across oceans. Now, at the time, uh, there were two great uh, passenger shipping companies making runs across the Atlantic from Britain to New York City. There was the Cunard Company, and then there was White Star Line. Now, the Cunard Company, they focused on speed. 
Their goal was to get passengers back and forth across the Atlantic as quickly as possible. And so they invested heavily in fast and economical ships. But White Star Line, they knew they couldn't compete with the speed of the canard ships. And so they knew they had to do something innovative to get passengers. And so instead of speed, they focused on luxury. They focused on service. You could get across the Atlantic very quickly on a canard ship. But if you travel on a white star line, you wouldn't want to be in that big of a hurry. And and so everything they did catered to the the wealthy and the well-off, both in the U.S. and Great Britain. And by the turn of the century, white star line had proven to be the more successful of the two companies, even though they had the slower ships. Now, here's the part that you might be more familiar with. By 1900, White Star Line decided that they needed to invest in new ships, bigger and more luxurious than any other ships that had ever crossed the ocean before. And so they commissioned three different ships to be built and they called them their Olympic class liners. The names of these ships were the Olympic, the Britannic, and the Titanic. See, I told you, you had heard this story before. Now, I don't probably have to tell you much more about the story of the Titanic. There's a few good movies if you want to check those out and learn more. I won't spoil the ending. But when it was launched from Southampton on the 10th of April in 1912, uh, the Titanic was the largest, most luxurious ship that had ever set out to sea. It was so large, in fact, that there, even until the day it launched, there were naysayers in the local papers that saying, surely as soon as it left the dry dock, it would absolutely sink right there because it was just too heavy. It was a technological marvel for its day, one of the greatest engineering feats in history up to that point, all because this company, White Star Line, said that they wanted the biggest and the best. Now, a few months ago, I randomly just happened to kind of run across this picture on the internet, and it's a, it's a doctored picture. It's not real, but, but it's a fascinating picture nonetheless, and it, because it's a picture of the Titanic, and it's scaled to show how the Titanic would compare to our modern day cruise ships that we have out on the water. And well, you can just see this for yourself. That's what the Titanic would look like if it was around today. The cruise ship that you see in the background there, that's called the Allure of the Sea. It's almost a quarter of a mile long. It's higher than a 20-story building. It weighs 100,000 tons, and it cost a billion dollars to build. And every single way, today's modern cruise ship dwarfs everything about the Olympic line of ships that White Star Line commissioned 100 years ago. You, You see, the thing is, If it wasn't for how the story ended in the Titanic, we would probably never even remember that ship. In fact, it wasn't even a few years later uh, after uh, the Titanic sank that the White Star Line launched another ship that was actually bigger and more luxurious even than the Titanic, but we don't even remember that ship. Why? Because nothing extraordinary happened to it. And soon it was just replaced, of course, by a bigger ship. And that one was replaced by a bigger ship. And that one was replaced and so, so on and so forth. 
Now, the reason that I tell you this story this morning and start off with this is because this picture, I think, is kind of a visual metaphor for what I believe are two of the greatest challenges that churches face and also that we face as individuals in our current culture if we are going to strive to keep centered on the core values that help direct us in our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And these two challenges I want to propose to you this morning are this. They are challenges of proportion and they are challenges of perspective. Proportion and perspective. Now the first problem here is the problem of proportion. And here's what this problem says. It says that when everything is the most important thing, when everything that happens is the biggest deal that has ever happened in the history of the world, then nothing is really that big a deal. Nothing is actually that important anymore. And that is coupled with the problem of perspective, which is when all of these great big deals that are always happening, when we fail to put them in the proper perspective of the greater, more important things in the world. They go hand in hand. We have trouble keeping things in proper proportion. And so minor things become major things with one retweet and one like on Instagram. And this causes people in our culture to lose all perspective on what is really important, on what is really valuable. Just a couple of years ago, there was a documentary crew that went out and they were filming a documentary on the Titanic. And they went out and they did one of those on the, on the street interviews and they asked people, what do you think is the largest boat that has ever sailed? And even a hundred years later, people still think it's the Titanic. It's a problem of perspective. Let me give you another example. When I was a kid, you knew when there was big breaking news going on. And the reason you knew is because Tom Brokaw's face would show up out of nowhere on your TV screen. And when I was a kid, it was always on Saturday morning and it was interrupting cartoons every single time. And so Tom Brokaw's face would show up and it would, he would tell you there was breaking news that was happening. And after a little bit of anger that your cartoons were being interrupted, maybe that was just me. But anyway, after a little bit of that, then you focused and you watched because you knew, even when I was a kid, you knew that something important was happening. Now, I would challenge you to go home this afternoon, turn on any of the cable news channels, your choice, and I guarantee you at any time of the day, there's about a one in three chance that there's going to be a huge banner on the bottom of the screen that says what? Breaking news. There will be big flashing graphics and intense sounding music. I mean, it seems like news is just breaking all of the time. It breaks so much we will never be able to put it back together again. The term breaking news has basically kind of become meaningless because it's always breaking news. Even if it could wait till tomorrow. And of course, the reason that news is breaking all the time is because that's what people desire. We desire the intense, the new the controversial. Cable news companies know this. Entertainment companies know this. We desire things that often are not good for our souls. And when we do that, we lose our sense of proportion and perspective. 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine wrote this in his Confessions. 
Because God made us for himself, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. He's talking about what we desire. And you'd think he's writing to us today. I think he kind of is. You see, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us in these words from Scripture that Lee read for us this morning, this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, I think what what Jesus is trying to get across is, is that if we're wondering why our hearts are restless, it might be because there is a problem of misplaced desire, and that is then leading us to problems of proportion and perspective. Now, when reading this this chapter, which is one of my favorite chapters in, in all of Scripture, when reading this passage, I think it is helpful to look at it on two different levels. So the first way, the first level to, to look at it is, is in the way that God desires to meet our immediate daily needs. And honestly, for most of us here this morning, this interpretation even might be difficult. Because we are so far removed from the daily anxieties of a person living in the first century in the Middle East, where life expectancy was probably about 40 years of age, where women and children were often considered property, where food and water supplies were completely dependent on the weather. These are just things that honestly we don't think about a lot in our day-to-day lives. A 21st century American from the middle class is going to read this differently than, say, a Syrian pastor trying to shepherd and guide his flock in the midst of war and persecution. We will read this differently than a mother of three in a rural village in Honduras wondering where her children's medicine will come from. We will just read it differently. Culture absolutely does shape our reading of scripture. But just because a passage speaks differently to different people in different times, in different places, does not mean that the passage is not still speaking. And so I think this passage also works on a different level as well. Not just about physical hunger, but also about spiritual hunger. Not just, about, not just about bread and water to feed our, our, our bodies, but about broken bread, about a shared cup for all of us. And not just about what we need, but also what we desire. You see, on that level, what I think this passage tells us is that if we can get our desires pointed in the right direction, then everything else will follow. Then we will start to see the world as God intended us to see it, not as an economy of scarcity, but as an economy of generosity, not as a culture of winner takes all, but as a culture of sacrifice, mutual sacrifice, and not as a world of just constant low level anxiety that we all just seem to feel all the time, but as a place where we can finally find the rest that our hearts so desire. Desire. You know, I know so many people that are doing very good volunteer work all around the world, giving money, giving a lot of money to worthy causes all over the place, trying to change the world. And yet I see so many of them doing it for the wrong reasons. You're doing it out of anger or guilt 
or some even out of maybe trying to make their name great. You see, this is the problem of perspective and this is what Jesus is trying to point us towards is that it's not the good works that save us, it's the work of God that saves us and calls us into that good work. And so Jesus is here this morning telling us today, seek me first and everything else will be added to you. And if we can understand this call of the kingdom, then we might start to get our perspectives right. Then everything else begins to fall into place. And maybe not right away, maybe not tomorrow, but over a lifetime of discipleship and practice. And I think the perspective that we have to focus on is not the perspective of ourselves, the perspective of this world. It is the perspective of grace. Perspective of grace. You see, a perspective of grace It says that there are big challenges facing me in my life, but God's presence will always be there even when I don't feel it. It says says that our world seems to be constantly sitting on the brink of chaos and yet God so loved this world that he gave his only son that we might have eternal life both here and now and in the life to come. A perspective of grace says that there are those in our churches who are so deeply divided on very sensitive and important issues. And yet by grace, we are all invited to the table to fellowship and to grow more perfect in the love of God. A perspective of grace isn't just a modern cruise ship compared to the Titanic. No, no, in this this case, grace is the cruise ship and everything else is like a rubber ducky. That's how overwhelming grace is. A perspective of grace, I think, is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 3.18. When he says, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. If your heart is restless this morning... I can offer you no better perspective than a perspective of grace. It is everything. I'll close with this and then we'll come to the table. Some of the best advice that I ever heard on what it means to be a disciple came from a pastor who had built a very successful church and ministry. Uh, In fact, one of the largest churches in, in our country but he had struggled with doubt and feelings of unworthiness early in his career. From the outside, it looked like he was leading one of the most successful faith communities in the entire world. But on the inside, the pastor could only see the problems, could only see the way things go wrong or not exactly like he wanted them to. And so he felt discouraged And then one day, this young pastor, feeling discouraged, he he called up an older pastor in his community. This pastor was nearing retirement and, and, and he knew he would be able to give some good advice. And so the two sat down and this younger pastor confessed his feelings to him, confessed how discouraged he felt. And, and this other pastor thought about it for a while and they prayed about it for a while. And then he told the young pastor this. He said, what I discovered in many years of ministry 
is that I always overestimated what I could do in the short term. I always thought my church should be bigger than it was. I always thought my people should be better disciples than they were being. I always thought the failures of today were just overwhelming. But what I know now is that we also have a tendency to underestimate what God can do through us in the long term. What God can do through us when we choose the long walk of Christian obedience in the same direction over years and years. You see, that is a kingdom perspective. That is the perspective of grace. That is what it means to hold core values and be true to them even in the great storms of our life and our culture. And what I hope for this church is really the same thing that I hope for myself. It's that we would center ourselves in the values of the gospel and that we would walk on towards a grace that is greater than any height or any depth the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.